Good morning. I don't know if I have anything to add to that. We can probably just wrap up right here. Um, except that today marks the closing message in the first, or sorry, Christian Missionary Alliance series on the 40 days of prayer. And the title for our message is Reawakening to the Return of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, in the interest of abounding in love, I'm not going to bring you any specific thoughts uh, in terms of theology on the return of Christ, how that event happens, to whom that event happens, to when it's going to happen. I think these are really great conversations for you to have in your Bible studies, your life groups, your personal conversations. And if you don't already have some kind of fundamental understanding of eschatology, the study of the end times, I would encourage you to make some time this week to uh, dig in and really abound in your knowledge and your discernment of those things. Um, even if it's just reading the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for when it's read out loud, and there's also a blessing for those who hear it and who take it to heart. And someone once told me that we are to shout the things that the Bible shouts. And speaking of shouting, Michael, could you turn me down in the house just a little bit here? even just in the monitors. I'm not trying to break anyone's eardrums. Thank you. The Bible shouts that Jesus is coming back, and the conditions of that are whispered. The end of all things and Christ's imminent return is embedded in almost every single book of the Bible, and this kind of biblical hide-and-seek that you can have going looking for it Reminds me of Proverbs 25, too. It is the glory of God to conceal things, and it is the glory of a king to search things out. And it takes a quiet heart to hear the things that God whispers. So will you quiet yourself this upcoming week to hear what God is whispering to his church? Because if you do, I think it'll make this message much more interesting. I am confident that if I were to put any ideas out there, I would um, alienate the whole room uh, from me on one point or another. Um, moving on, <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're not getting into it today. Uh, I remember hearing a story about a researcher who found a remarkable trait in rats. Now, the study was very concisely laid out by Joseph Halnan of Psychology Today. So I'm going to read you a little bit of uh, the study that I've plagiarized directly from his article. So, in the 1950s, John Hopkins professor Kurt Richter conducted an experiment with domesticated and wild rats. The idea was to put them in a glass jar that they could not escape, and measure the amount of time they swam before they gave up and went under. The first domestic rat, Richter noted, swam excitedly on the surface for a very short time and then dove to the bottom, 
where it began to swim around, nosing its way along the glass wall. Two minutes later, it died. Now came the wild rats, which are renowned for their swimming ability. And one by one, having dropped into the water, they surprised him. Within just minutes of entering the water, all 34 of his wild rats died. What kills these rats, he wondered. I think it has something to do with the water, but... The answer, in a word, hopelessness. The rats are in a situation against which they have no defense. They seem to literally give up. Richter then tweaked the experiment. He took other similar rats and put them in the jar, and just before they were expected to die, he picked them up. He held them a little while, and then he put them back in the water. In this way, he wrote, the rats quickly learn that the situation is not actually hopeless. In this follow-up experiment where he dried them off, gave them a brief period of rest, and put them right back into the water, the same rats now swam for an average of 60 hours, two and a half days. A rat that survived and was rescued swam 240 times longer than one that was not given any intervention. Not only that, but having been saved again, they recovered almost immediately. When the rats learned that they were not doomed, that the situation was not lost, that there might be a helping hand at the ready, when they had a reason to keep swimming, they did. They did not give up, and they did not go under. After the elimination of hopelessness, wrote Richter, the rats do not die. I don't mean to call you a bunch of wild rats, church, but we have a reason to keep swimming. There's a slide I'm missing here. There we go. <laughs> I wanted to lighten it up a little bit after the whole drowning rats thing. <laughs> but hopelessness is so pervasive in our society, and I don't have to convince you of that. In fact, I even see it creeping into the culture of Christendom. It seems to creep in as we've allowed feelings generated in the echo chambers of social media and the 24-hour news cycle to become the deafening resonance of hopelessness for us. And I wanted to share a few passages of Scripture today that I, I pray will wake us up, that will arouse us and cause us to be prepared for action and prepared for the day that Christ returns. So let's get to the good news first. If you are in Christ, you are already dead. Look at what the Scripture says. Galatians 220 through 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you were saved, you joined your life to Christ, and he justified you by forgiving you of your sin. His death became your life, and now, you are free from sin and alive in Christ. We're already dead to this world. Our bodies just haven't caught up to that fact yet. And what a paradox that when we die with Christ, we become more alive than we have ever been. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, if anyone 
is in Christ. He is a new creation. It's not a remodel. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What would we have to be hopeless about if we have been reconciled to God? Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Whatever happens, let's not get caught up in this modern belief that Jesus and the devil are somehow two equal but opposite powers that are arm wrestling for your likes on Facebook. Some of you may have seen this. Like for Jesus, scroll for Satan. The scripture is clear. That's why I'm not on Facebook. I'm not kidding you. The scripture is clear. We are rescued from sin. Because Jesus trampled the power of sin and hell. And the gates of hell don't stand against his church. The darkness of hell does not overshadow us. We are permanently and preciously his. We are his treasure. I I considered reading the entire of Romans chapter 8 to you because it's just so plain about our position in Christ. I'm going to give you the opportunity to read it yourself this week if you like, but here are some of the highlights. Verses 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subjected to death because of sin, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 16, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. The Spirit gives, or sorry, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectations for the children of God to be revealed. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We know not what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just just look at our inheritance. We have the Scriptures. We have the words of the prophets made more certain. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Son who reconciles us to our Father. We have victory over our past. We have an indestructible hope for our future. And the piercing question that I want to ask you now, as I've been asking myself this week, how are you stewarding the hope that God has given you? 
there's a story that Jesus told of a man who went on a journey, and he entrusted everything he owned to his servants. The story goes that two of the servants invested their master's possession, and each doubled their portion. But one servant hid the master's treasure in the ground so he could keep it safe for the master's return. And this is how the master responded to that man when he got home. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you should have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own and with interest. The verses that come directly after that verse, that parable, they tell a story of a time when all of the nations of the world are placed before Jesus, and he separates them like a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And to the goats, he condemns them to eternal fire, saying, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will all go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in case you've entertained the idea that Jesus was just like a nice, smiley guy who hugged and cuddled all the time, just remember that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other character in the entire Bible. And I would submit to you that he preached on that subject because hell is real, And he really came to save people from going there. What separates the wicked servant from the wise servants? What separates the sheep from the goats? People who are awakened to Christ's return adopt the same heart as the one that they are waiting for. Friends, we have to recognize that the return of Christ is in a series of events where our longing for him and his longing for us is consummated, and after that, we will never be apart from him again. Our time on earth is the time of our sanctification. It's the process of becoming the type of people that heaven will be full of. In the parable of the sheep and goats, it seems like the deciding factor of the person who either went to heaven or went to hell was whether or not they cared for people in desperate need. What do you want to be found doing on the day that Christ returns? And and to be clear, Jesus is not saying that works get us into heaven. If we could earn heaven, then we didn't need Jesus to come at all. They're simply the result of the Spirit of God alive and at work in our lives. It is the primary means by which you can tell a disciple of Christ, do they exhibit love? And to be sure, the works that we do aren't even our works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can't even take credit for them. God planned them in advance. Whether or not we walk in them is something 
of the position of our mind. Colossians 3, 1-3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I recently heard a quote from the late evangelist Billy Graham as he was talking about this idea of our lives being consumed by Christ. He says, do you trust Jesus? Are you following him? If so, if that's what you say about yourself, well then how many people would know it? How many of your friends and coworkers, your family, your neighbors would look at you and say, why yes, they're a Christian. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence to convict you? If people cannot tell that you are a Christian, can I encourage you to take a step back and take a real sober look at your life? I don't think that these scriptures are valuable for trying to figure out who is going to hell, who's not going to hell, but they speak to us and we can examine ourselves and ask, am I walking in the way that Christ would have me walk? And so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Remember what the scripture says in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that he spoke of was the return of Christ. And besides, <laughs> how else would you prefer people see you? What else would you want to have people see in you if not Christ? Our intersection with the people around us may be the only interaction that they ever have opportunity for to engage Christ, to hear the truth, and then to see how the truth has changed our lives. I've heard it said that for the unbeliever, this life is the only heaven that they will ever experience. And for those who believe, this life is the only hell we'll ever experience. And I, for one, have not found this life to be something so wonderful that if there's not a hope for something beyond it, if we're not going to meet Jesus at the end, I don't know that I would want to keep living it. It reminds me of the words of the songwriter Aaron Weiss. He says, If I didn't have you as my guide, I'd still wander, lost in Sinai, or counting the plates of cars from out of state, how I could jump in their path as they hurry along. Until you surround me, you pretty much are all I can see, like a thick fog. If there was no way into God, I would never have laid in this grave of a body for so long. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And for Satan, the Word tells us that he knows his time is short. And I see him paying out his judgment in advance on people who otherwise God would rescue. People living in sin, reaping the reward of their sin. I was thinking about my time working at Cherry Street Mission. There was four different occasions where I was waiting 
uh, with individuals for first responders to arrive as I watched them dying of drug overdoses. And the agony of those moments to think that that would be the close of an already miserable life. And then to think of what would come after that. The gospel message is still relevant today. And we must share it. And our lives must also represent the proof that it is true. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. We are so close. We're so close to Jesus coming back. If he said it was soon, 2,000 years ago, where do you think we are now? Someone told me one time that in terms of biblical prophecy, that the nation of Israel is the hour's hand, the city of Jerusalem is the minute's hand, and the last temple is the second's hand, the temple that will sit in Jerusalem for the prophecy to be fulfilled. And um, Israel became a nation again in 1948. The hour's hand has struck. The city of Jerusalem is inhabited by Jews today. The minute's hand is there. And in 2018, a red heifer was born in Israel. This is going to be a little deep here. Isn't that a handsome cow? That's a good-looking cow. A red heifer is necessary for the Jews. There's a group called the Temple Institute to consecrate the items to be used in temple service for them to be able to carry out sacrifices in the temple. The last time the Jews had access to a biblically prescribed red heifer that could be used in temple service was 70 A.D., it's been lost ever since. This is the first good candidate they've seen. It's going to sound really spooky, okay? We're getting into some deep water here. But there's 70 years between the founding of the nation of Israel and a red heifer being born in Israel. And if you do a, a, a Bible study on the significance of the number 70 in Scripture, especially as it relates to Jerusalem, it will blow your mind. And some of you think I'm on drugs right now. But it, what, what I'm saying, whether you're into the symbols and the signs, what I'm telling you, the time is short. And Jesus is coming back. The end of human history is at hand. We need knowledge and all discernment for the day that we're in right now. Because the time will indeed come when we will no longer have the time to choose Jesus. C.S. Lewis uh, says this in Mere Christianity in another one of his books, uh, The Great Divorce. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door is open. And from mere Christianity, God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away, for this time 
It will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying that you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time to discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And I'm sharing these things with you because I want to convey the seriousness of the moment that we're in. We have the choice today to live like Jesus really is going to return. The Bible is not just a collection of stories to be learned, but it's a story from God who is still writing on the tablets of our hearts. The book's not over yet. Years ago, I was in a worship service where I, I was slain in the Spirit, and I don't know exactly how to describe that experience, and I know that even just that description is kind of off-putting uh, to some people, but I was laying on the floor, weeping and speaking some language that I had never heard before. So you can take that for whatever it's worth. And as I laid there, someone, I don't even know who it was, put a Bible in my hands, and I heard God say to me, this is my story with you. People who are awakened to Christ's return are writing a story with God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. I suddenly felt like I was no longer a bystander to all the stories of the Bible, but that God was inviting me in saying, these are just the examples of the story that I want to write in your life. I'll never forget that moment. Years after that, I heard a Levi the Poet poem called Memories um, that is essentially uh, the book of Luke put into a kind of poetic uh, narrative form. And I'm going to share a portion uh, of that poem with you as the worship team can uh, come back up. It relates directly to what I'm sharing today. And we're kind of jumping into the end of the poem where Jesus is speaking with his disciples about the memories he's had with them. Flashback. A few minutes before that first kiss. Judas, do you remember back when I healed Lazarus? And the people rejoiced as he was set free. Thank you for sharing in that memory with me. Flashback in between the times that you betrayed me. Peter, do you remember walking out on the sea? I promise one day you're going to learn to trust me. And it was scary at first, but we laughed. We laughed when we got to safety. Man, thank you for sharing in that memory with me. Flashback. Just before the crack of the whip hits and tears the rest of the skin off my back and flesh. My friends, do you remember the five loaves and the two fish? Do you remember my compassion on those of them that were sick? Do you remember me blessing it and thanking God with the least of you? Thank you for sharing in that memory with me. Flashback, just before the crown of thorns on my head. Do you remember laughing around that table, breaking bread, sharing wine? Do you remember what I said? This is poured out to forgive the sins of many. Thank you for sharing in that memory with me. Flashback just before I take my last breath, before I close my eyes and God turns his head and I lose the will to live and the strength in my legs 
and my heart breaks and thunder strikes and I am left for dead. My bride, do you remember your first love and the feelings that you had for me? Do you remember our long talks and the way that you wept with me? Do you remember our long walks and the way that you stepped with me? Do you remember the silence and the way that we listened to the wonder that I created? Your eyes used to glisten like the stars. And now I'm wondering where you are. The times you spend with me are far and few between. I miss you. Won't you please, please come and make more memories with me. I am here with you. Be here with me. I want to hold you and I want you to see that that cross you took up for me is not dead and I am not another empty, fleeting thing. That stone has been rolled away and I'm awake and I breathe. Stick your fingers through my palms if it helps you believe. Not my will, but yours. Through the steps I take with these feet, make this triumph our memory as we stand and we sing. Surrender is difficult and victory is so sweet. And I saw that shining star rising from the east. I thought maybe, maybe it was coming for me. If you have believed in Jesus and you hear nothing else today, I want you to know that the author and perfecter of your faith is soon going to walk onto the stage and the time for making memories will be gone forever. And I'm encouraging you as it's so hard to preach these messages because it's like I could just stand in front of a mirror and tell myself the truth. Live like you're already dead and there's nothing to lose. Spend your grace, invest your grace and kindness on others like you're spending your master's possessions. Let's encourage one another as we have the opportunity to adopt the same heart of the one as whom we are waiting for. Jesus, he's coming soon. And if you've never believed in Christ and uh, you sense that God is speaking you to you in some way today, I, I, I want you to hear that this life is for you. That this is not just a select club, but Jesus died for you. Sometimes in a church we have an invitation for people to accept the gospel, and the pastor usually asks people to bow their heads and to uh, close their eyes. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different today, because as I think about that, it's not just repeating a prayer, but this is something... Um, a decision that requires boldness and is something that when you've made that decision, could you turn me down just a little bit? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm hearing myself. When you've made that decision, it does not leave you anonymous and I don't believe that it's made anonymous. If Jesus is moving on your heart right now, I encourage you today to accept his salvation. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And so he promises to be with us. So if there's, if there's anyone in the room that has never made a commitment to Christ and you would like to in this moment, will you stand up or, or raise your hand right where you are? Church, there is a hurting one out there. And 
I see it every day. And I know some of our context is not all ministry context. But when you go to the places where Jesus went, the gospel doesn't become an ideology. It becomes a story that you're writing with Jesus. I want to fill this baptismal. I want to create a space where people meet the risen Jesus because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that will be a great day for some and it will be a terrible day for others. Jesus is coming back. Let's get ready, okay? Let's worship. Let's worship.